Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 17. Although good Christian commentators disagree somewhat as to the best way to understand the prophecy at the end of chapter 16, I can't escape the conclusion that it refers, at least partly, to the events that Matthew narrates in chapter 17. At the end of chapter 16, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, granted, the kingdom comes in stages. It comes in a sense... Anywhere and any time, Jesus Christ is embraced as Savior and Lord, and it comes significantly and powerfully through the resurrection and the giving of the Spirit on Pentecost. And the kingdom comes manifestly as the church grows and the gospel spreads out beyond Jerusalem and Judea and begins to infiltrate and penetrate the Roman world. Yes, I agree with that. And it is true that some of the disciples standing there with Jesus at the end of chapter 16 witness All those events, not everyone saw them. Judas Iscariot never saw any of them. Thomas was absent for some of it, and James, the brother of John, died before much of it. But some of those standing with Jesus at the end of chapter 16 saw all those events. So, yes, it could refer to the coming of the kingdom in that sense. But I cannot escape the sense that it refers primarily to the events narrated here in chapter 17. Listen to what Matthew says without the unnatural interruption of the chapter division. We hear this differently, I think, because we read chapter 16 on one day and then chapter 17 on the next. But that is, of course, an artificial separation. Hear it as it is written. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. That, to me, sounds for all the world like a contained unit of thought. Some of you are going to see something. Six days later, some of you saw something. So it may mean more than that, but I don't see how it can mean less than that. The transfiguration is thus a foreshadowing of the coming kingdom of God. For just a moment, a select group of disciples were permitted to see Jesus in all of his real and coming glory. Thanks be to God. We'll begin reading now at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Let me just interrupt the narration briefly to explain that word transfigured. That's not a word we use very often in the English language. It is translating the Greek word metamorpho, from which we get our English word metamorphosis. 
R.T. France says helpfully here, the traditional translation transfigured from the Latin represents a verb elsewhere translated transformed, as in Romans 12, 2, or changed, as in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. Its meaning here is spelt out by the clauses that follow. His face shone like the sun, recalls Moses in Exodus 34, 29 to 35. And the garments white as light suggest a heavenly being. The description of the ultimate glory of the righteous, as in 1343, closed quote. So before the eyes of the three disciples, Jesus is miraculously changed. He radiates glory and he appears as a citizen of heaven. William Hendrickson adds a helpful comment here saying, Jesus then underwent a metamorphosis. His human nature begins to make use of its divine attributes. So for just a moment, Jesus appeared as he actually is. He unveiled himself, as it were, so that the disciples could see him as he is and as he will be when the kingdom has fully come. That must have been very encouraging to the disciples, as indeed it was meant to be. We carry on with the story in verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The Gospel of Mark, of course, adds some marvelous detail here. Mark explains the odd outburst of Peter in Mark 9, 6. He says, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. This was an overwhelming experience for the disciples, and it was probably not until much later that they were able to think clearly about what they had seen and heard. What they saw was Jesus looking like God, shining like the sun, and surrounded by Old Testament heroes. Now, as to the significance of those heroes, there is general agreement that Moses and Elijah are intended to be understood as representative characters. They stand for the law and the prophets, and the message seems to be that the law and the prophets point to Jesus and are fulfilled in and surpassed by Jesus. That is why the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah do not compete with Jesus. They are not voices to be heard alongside of Jesus. Their role was to anticipate and prepare for Jesus. But with Jesus being here now and coming in all his power and glory, it is time for them to fade from the stage. Like the moon and the stars become invisible in the brightness and the splendor of the sun. That's what we're seeing here. We pick up the story in verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. We have no way of knowing whether or not the disciples obeyed this command. There is certainly no record of them speaking about these things before the resurrection. 
We do, however, have a record of their testimony to these things after the resurrection. Peter talks about these events in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. He says there, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, closed quote. So apparently this incident made a massive impression on the Apostle Peter. It convinced him that Jesus Christ was the unique revelation of God. It helped him to understand that Jesus was more than an inspired teacher of the law. He was more than the greatest of the prophets. He was the definitive word of God, and he was here and coming in power, majesty, and glory. Peter saw the kingdom coming, and he heard the voice from heaven, and it changed him, he said. Thanks be to God. We pick up the story in verse 10 as the disciples are coming down the mountain with Jesus. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The main point of this dialogue is to remind the disciples that while the kingdom is breaking into the world and facing strong and determined opposition, kingdom messengers must expect a mixed reception, as illustrated by the response experienced by John the Baptist. Some people heard him gladly and others opposed him vehemently. And ultimately, those people seized John and did to him what they pleased. This is the pattern that all kingdom messengers must understand and reckon with. As with John, so with Jesus, and also so with all who follow him. That's the main point that Jesus is trying to get across here to his disciples. Along the way, he clearly identifies John the Baptist with Elijah. Matthew makes that explicit, which is interesting because John the Baptist himself never even made that connection. Jesus isn't saying that John was Elijah reincarnated. He's just saying that John had the mantle of Elijah or had a similar anointing. And this is another reminder, by the way, not to be crassly literalistic in the way we handle biblical prophecy. Crass Literalism gets us into trouble. When Jesus says at the Last Supper, this is my body, which is given for you, most of us understand that he is not speaking in a crassly, literalistic way. The word is there means something like represents or reminds or stands for. Similarly, when Jesus says in Matthew eleven thirteen to 14, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come, we understand that is there means something like John is like Elijah, or John is filled with a similar spirit, or John has a similar anointing, or John fulfills a similar function. That's how Jesus speaks. And it's helpful for us to learn his language so that we understand him correctly. So Jesus explains this to the disciples 
And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. We pick up the story in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. The point of the story is to illustrate the gap between the glory and brilliance of the mountain and the confusion and chaos of the valley down below. We are a long way still from the consummated kingdom of God. Down here in the valley, there is brokenness, disease, confusion, and incompetence. Lord, help. As for faith like a mustard seed moving mountains, Charles Spurgeon says memorably here, In the mission field, mountains of exclusiveness, which shut out missionaries, have been removed. In ordinary life, insurmountable difficulties are graciously dissolved in a variety of ways before real faith hindrances disappear. According to the word of the Lord Jesus, nothing shall be impossible unto you. Closed quote. Thanks be to God. We pick up the story at verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. This is the second passion prediction in Matthew's gospel, and it appears to happen as Jesus and the three disciples rejoin the other nine. All were greatly distressed upon hearing it. The three who are with him on the mountain must have also been greatly perplexed. If the kingdom is coming, and if the glory is only now but veiled, then how can it be that the Son of Man should be delivered into the hands of men and suffer the sort of things Jesus has here described? Here we note how partial at this point was the faith and understanding of the disciples. Verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Matthew is the only gospel writer who shares this story. No doubt his previous occupation as a tax collector played some role in his decision making here. The tax in question was for the support of the temple and its services and was levied upon every Jewish male between the ages of 25 and 50. Obviously, both Peter and Jesus were in that age bracket, 
Whether the other disciples were younger than that isn't explicitly stated. The main point of the story is that Jesus, as the unique Son of God, is exempt from taxes given to his Father. And yet, to avoid offense, he is willing to pay. Most commentators understand that in a secondary sense, this teaching would have been understood by the first century Christians as exempting them as sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ from Jewish temple taxes, an application that became moot, of course, in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. D.A. Carson hints at a further figurative application. He says, Though Jesus, as the unique son, is free from the law's demands, he not only submits to them, but makes provision, as only he can, for the demands on his disciples. And this, right after a passion prediction, close quote. Are you hearing that? Jesus, as the rightful son of God, will pay the price for his disciples to join him in worshiping God. He will pay what we cannot so that we can join him in the house and in the worship of the Lord. That's the gospel, my friends, in one compact little story. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet